episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Karen's Therapy and Nutrition. Karen's Therapy and Nutrition, specializing in EMDR therapy for the treatment of trauma, food, weight, and body concerns, now offering virtual and in-person sessions. Visit therapy. T-H-E-R-A-P-Y dot com for more information or to schedule a consultation today. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show Cindy Collin, Licensed Clinical Social Worker Supervisor and Certified Mental Health Integrative Medicine Provider. We'll be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, integrative psychotherapy. Welcome to the show, Cindy. Hi, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for Good having morning. me. Good morning. Thanks for agreeing to be on. Um, I'm really excited about learning more about this. So tell us, what are your credentials and experience? Well, I'm a um, clinical social worker licensed here in the state of Texas and in the state of Colorado. I am also a Texas board approved supervisor a certified mental health integrative medicine practitioner, which means I've done extensive training on this whole gut brain, culinary medicine, functional nutrition stuff. Um, I'm also a certified Kundalini yoga instructor. Oh, cool. Yeah. I don't teach Kundalini yoga in classes or anything, but I do bring a bunch of aspects about breath and meditation Mm -hmm. and even vagus nurse stuff into therapy. So that's kind of fun. Um, and I have, um, I have a mindfulness practice, and a lot of that came from kundalini yoga. So I don't know. I don't think I have a credential for mindfulness, but it's a big <laughs> part of my life. Yeah. Um, so kundalini, is that the one that focuses on the like ohms and like the, uh, the like vocalizations and that sort of yeah. thing? Yeah. There's a, l- a lot of mantra, a lot of breath work, right. using your body to go into different angles. And, and it was so... Um, I didn't know until later, until I started to do more gut brain stuff and polyvagal stuff and learn about the vagus nerve that I was like, 
oh my, this Kundalini stuff that's several thousand years old was all about the autonomic nervous system and the vagus nerve. Like I was kind of um, maybe impressed with myself that I did this thing years earlier and it had exact application for what I do as a therapist. So that's also interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. I think as a therapist, I think the longer we're in practice, the more like things seem to come together in a way. I don't know if that's been your experience. Absolutely. You, you hit that on the nose. Yeah. Um, so in your practice, what is the name of your practice or the practice that you work at? Okay. I own a, a group practice and it's called okay. Flourish, Flourish Psychotherapy and Nutrition. Okay. And at Flourish, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? Um, well, I have, um, there are six therapists at Flourish and one nutritionist. Um, awesome. Currently, one of the therapists accepts Blue Cross Blue Shield, but she's got a full caseload like many, many others in town, because I know that's a popular insurance panel. And I am looking to take on um, another one or two therapists that take that. Awesome. Um, That's really exciting. That sounds like a a big, a a large group practice, actually, six people is a a good amount of people. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm like, almost in awe of it just like kind of happened. Right. Like one minute it was just me and I've got, you know, a caseload of of 30 clients because I do a bunch of groups. So I have more clients in there. And then the next thing I know, I'm looking at my at my EHR software that shows me how many clients I have and how many sessions we've booked. And I'm like, oh, my. Oh, my. We've got like almost 80 clients now. Wow, so it's, wow. it's it's yeah, that these last um, six months have been we've really seen a lot of growth. So that's a really good feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you personally don't accept insurance at the practice. Um, do you offer a sliding scale or reduced fee to clients? I do not. As a therapist, I have a pretty full caseload, but um, I do have um, a couple of LMSWs that are with me and they offer a sliding scale. Okay. And uh, do you have weekend or evening appointments, either yourself or any of your associates? You know, when, when you do this work, um, I have found that I work some evenings and I work three Saturdays a, a month. Um, and then I, we, and the other therapist that is, that is a part of what we do. We try to be available for when folks are available. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, is being th- a therapist your first career? If not, what was? <laughs> you know, I, 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 I say to my clients when I go over and form consent, I say, I have a bachelor's of social work and I have a master's of social work, but they're about a hundred years apart. <laughs> and or at least it, it feels that way. Um, but after I graduated with a bachelor's of social work back um, when Ronald Reagan, <clears throat> excuse me, was president there and I was in the rock and roll business at the time and um, and I just was, I, I can't do this social work thing. There was, and I enjoyed what I did. I was a counselor for teenage girls and loved it, but knew I couldn't do that. And so for the next 30 something years, I was in technology and this is before smartphones. Like I was in, cool. in, in technology before it was really a, a thing. So I've got that. And then, um, then I had this great opportunity for a second career and thought back on those days as a, as a bachelor of social work student and how much I love that. 
and um, was able to go back to graduate school and now doing this thing. I had no idea, Noah, that I would love doing it as much as I do. Had no idea that I would find learning and researching and and really getting into the sciencey stuff. I am not good at the science stuff, <laughs> um, but I have just found it endlessly fascinating to learn more and more. So really, really excited to have this as a second career. What, what drew you to getting your master's and becoming a therapist? Well, um, I knew I wanted to go I wanted to do something different. I was a single mom for a long time. And once my son graduated from high school, I kept telling him, I'm going to do something, do something different. And um, so I was looking at um, doing public policy at the time. Um, and, um, but my, I had a family member go through a mental health crisis and um, it was, I mean, I had to do a lot. It was almost like I was the case manager in, mm-hmm. in some ways. And then I had a friend, you know, tell me like, you're really good at this. Like you, you held, you held it and you, you responded really well. I don't know a lot of people that could do what you did. And you might want to think about pursuing, you know, this mental health stuff rather than this policy stuff. And my friend was spot on. That's some good feedback. Yeah. Well, tell us a little more about yourself. What are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, et cetera? Well, I got, I got, a, lot, I got a lot going on here over at the house. I have a, a crew, or I had a crew of three pups, um, and one of, my, one of my oldest pups, 16 and a half, um, I lost her last fall. But now I've got my two boys, Paco and Xander. They accompany me in therapy pretty regularly. Um, Most of our clients at Flourish know them. They welcome them at the door, but they're older. Um, So that that gets a little, that's a a lot of care, but I'm happy to do that with the older ones. Um, Yeah, yeah, so I'm I'm pretty much, I I work a lot running a business, a small business and trying to grow. I don't have a lot of free time and do find my, (laughs) yeah, right. And And especially what we do as therapists, like, you know, it's a lot to hold, not only trying to, you know, work with the other therapist and making sure that everybody's getting what they need, but then also for my own clients. And so I find that I'm drawn to things like whether it be music or even TV shows or movies that have stories that have real characters and something that I can kind of um, lose myself in their story so that I can kind of take my time to kind of ground whatever I'm holding with everything that I'm doing. Um, I also, yeah. yeah, I also do a lot of them. Um, I have a, a lot of musculoskeletal challenges and I've had many surgeries over the years. I have a spine that's not very kind to me. So I do an awful lot of physical therapy on my own and, and, and yoga and, um, and as we start to talk about it, this culinary medicine thing, this using food as medicine is very, um, a very big part of my life. So I spend an enormous amount of my time in my kitchen. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, so just talking about you as a therapist, what, what modalities do you tend to draw upon? Um, that's a really good question. Um, 
And what, what, what I have found is that I just went towards things that I, that resonated with me, you know, modalities. Mm -hmm. And so I first started off with all this mindfulness stuff in graduate school and also self-compassion. I was super lucky to be at the university of Texas here in Austin. I mean, one of the professors there is Kristen Neff, who literally is like the one who developed the whole construct of self-compassion and all the research and, 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 and all that has to do with that. So that really influenced me early on, but I, had, as I had said to you that I was doing the Kundalini thing before then. And um, so I really gravitated to more mindfulness and mindfulness, let's say um, cognitive um, therapy, as well as acceptance and commitment therapy. So those were like really the grounding modalities that I first started off with. Um, mm -hmm. and, and then I got really drawn to attachment theory, or actually I had a supervisor who really encouraged me to explore that. Um, and that, that was hard to do that because my own attachment stuff was coming up as I was learning more mm -hmm. ab about it and was able to get through my own stuff. And, and I say, I am all about attachment. And what's wild is that attachment, mindfulness, um, and the Kundalini stuff, which I told you is very vagus nerve um, centric. And then I brought in a lot of polyvagal theory stuff um, which is the interpersonal neurobiology. And they all ended up really fitting well together. So I, so really what I do is that I just bring in modalities that all kind of um, fit in. And so, you know, sometimes internal family systems is something that I, I, I bring in therapy as well. Awesome. Awesome. So in, in talking about, you know, a whole body approach to mental health, how would you describe that? What is a whole body approach to mental health? Well, what that, what that to me means is that we, well, I say we, but me as a clinician, myself as a clinician, which now informs my, the, the practice of Flourish, is that looking at a client as a person, as a whole person, and not as a diagnosis, not as a label, not as a... Um, you know, a, 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 a cluster of symptoms and looking just to address those symptoms. When I look at them as a whole person, I mean, you can say that's holistic in a way. Mm -hmm. And so that whole body approach looks at, okay, you have these, you have these things that are happening within you. You have some behaviors, you have some um, maybe memories and experiences um, that either you don't, <laughs> that are not fun for you is how I try to say it. Um, or that are showing up in different ways. You're maybe having challenges with relationships or job. Maybe there's chronic fatigue or panic attacks. But as you can see, all of these things that I'm naming, I will look at them through a lens that that is always assessing, always looking for context, and always really looking at environmental, and that's internally in your body, environmental, right? Externally, systems. Um, as well as just the present moment. So that to me is that whole body approach. It, we're just going to look at everything that's going on with you and not just zero in on your brain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So you, you've mentioned interpersonal neurobiology a few times. Um, what is interpersonal neurobiology and how have you seen understanding and attention to this aid in the treatment of depression and anxiety? Well, this, um, this interpersonal neurobiology to me is, to, and this is my version of it, right? 
which is it's all about the autonomic nervous system and really understanding that we have messages going all over the body. You know, there's that, that you know, the neuro piece of it, right? Um, and these, these messages, when you get to understand how the brain responds to different messages that are being picked up by all of our senses, because again, we're always, we, we as human beings are always assessing what's happening externally, what's happening internally to kind of ju- to gauge whether we're safe or not. And it's not a, um, a conscious thing of safety. It's more of an unconscious um, thing that we're doing. And so this interpersonal neurobiology is about how is your body responding um, to what's happening in the moment or what has happened in the past. So understanding what's going on underneath the hood and then bringing that into the room and having maybe the client start to slowly be more connected with their body and understand the messages that are coming up for them. Um, Because these messages, when we understand how the brain and the body is reacting um, and or coping or not coping with something that's happening, um, they tend to get this bigger picture like, oh my God, my brain isn't broken. There's, um, you know, there's this real human stuff happening. This is kind of a response that's meant to protect me rather than to, um, you know, have me make the wrong decision. Like, you know, when we really start to understand how miraculous our bodies are at trying to protect us, making sure that we're surviving and even giving us some signs that, Hey, if you just do this thing over here, if you pay attention here, you might thrive. Mm-hmm. And, and so for our listeners who aren't familiar, can you tell us what the autonomic nervous system is responsible sure. for? Sure. Well, I think that um, most people have heard of fight or flight, right? So, um, so when you think about fight or flight, it's like, oh, crap. And maybe people have heard of, you know, um, if you see a saber-toothed tiger so many years ago, your body will switch um, into, a, into um, a mode that allows you to flee, like run really hard, really fast or fight. So you have strength to really fight. It's all about survival. So the autonomic nervous system has got, according to the polyvagal theory, has got three branches and those three branches um, are really our survival and thriving branches. And, um, and so this wiring is meant to pick up a threat even if it's a tiny little threat, it's not very good. Our autonomic nervous system is not very good at figuring out, is this a big threat? <laughs> is this just a little one? Is, in other words, your autonomic nervous system is wired to protect you. So whether it's a saber-toothed tiger or, or it's a whole bunch of notifications on your cell phone, your body's going to react in the same way about, oh, crap you know, what's happening. And then the autonomic nervous system then engages with different other systems in the body to maybe put some um, organs and some systems at rest and then pump up some other systems so that you can survive as best that you can. And is it my understanding, it's my understanding that um, things like trauma can help shape the way the autonomic nervous system responds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because when we, when we, we have a trauma and, 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 you know, a lot of, you know, we can even look at trauma as it's a response 
something turns really traumatic if you are alone in it. And alone doesn't mean that you're the only one standing there. Alone could mean you could have people around you, but they aren't noticing that this is really hard for you. And so in that moment, your body can encode that, that experience as this is not good. This is a threat and you're alone. And when we feel that aloneness, the autonomic nervous system will go into oh crap mode and, and maybe start shutting down for some people and start to put you in what, what is called a dorsal vagal um, state, which kind of your, your body's like, well, our chance of really getting out of this is not great. So we're just going to ha- hang out. And I call it it's like being a turtle, like the turtle going in the shell and to be in protecting and kind of sticking their head out every now and then, like, is it safe to come out? Are there people there that can help me? Um, and so in, in this way, that trauma can be encoded so that when something else happens years later, like a certain sound, a certain facial expression that the body has encoded during that previous trauma. Um, and then that could then, then kind of lead you going, oh, body knows how to respond to this. This is not good and can put you back into that, that not great autonomic nervous system response. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> when you're working with folks who have uh, anxiety and depression, um, how do you use interpersonal neurobiology um, to inform your work with that individual? Well, um, you know, not you know, it takes time. So how I work with with clients is depending on where they're where they are at. So it's not like everybody coming in with anxiety and depression. I just do it in this one way. But right. I do I do have um I do have handouts. <laughs> We have, we have, we have, we have, we have props. Um, and when we were in the office, what was really fun about that is that I have a bookshelf that is like a ladder. And when I did some trainings um, early on, there was a, the facilitator brought in, literally brought in a ladder and put the autonomic, the, the three branches of the autonomic nervous system on the ladder. And here I am the trainer going, I got a bookcase in my office that has that. So I, I started to put the branches up there and words associated with that. So that when a client is in, in my office and is getting in, you know, maybe talking about something that happened or even what they're experiencing right then and there, we kind of try to slowly say, where, where are you on the ladder? Where, Mm -hmm. where, where are you right now? What are your tells? Because it's really hard sometimes to notice like, huh, I am engaged in sympathetic nervous system. I'm in fight or flight right now. So we, we kind of, let's say, work on um, your tells and noticing what's happening under the hood so that you can get more connected to what's happening to you and in you, right, in, the, in, in that moment in order to understand your response, right, in a, in a broader context rather than, oh, I'm broken, I'll always react this way. Right. Um, yeah. And then, so now that we're doing the video thing, I have a, I have a ladder, a graphic that, that we use an awful lot. And then the other tool that we use a lot is the feelings wheel, um, because that can be hard when you're in um, a sympathetic or fight or flight response, your body disc- really is very only focused on survival. So it's really right. hard to connect to what you're really feeling. Um, and so when we start to maybe slow down and take some breaths and use the feelings wheel as a prompt to say, huh, am I feeling insignificant right now? Am I feeling inadequate? You know, more than just sadness or happy, right? Um, or even rage, right? We just try to really pull 
it apart as a way to kind of get you connected to what's happening in your body. Makes sense to me. <laughs> how about how about functional medicine and nutrition? How do those help with anxiety and depression? Well, that's you know, in so many different ways. That's a that's a loaded question in a in a functional <laughs> right because everybody's different. Um, and so, you know, if you're in a lot of Facebook groups or whatever, and you see this thing like, what, what food, what food should I eat that would help my anxiety? Like what works for one person doesn't work for another. So that's the biggest thing about functional medicine or functional nutrition when it comes to anxiety and depression is number one, understanding and getting to really assess and know each client and their own individual context and what's happening. Um, but what, what lots of, of new research and even older research has shown is that the microbiome, which is our gut, which is actually our second brain and the enteric nervous system has enormous influence over um, our brains functioning and our mood. And this, again, we're going into vagus nerve stuff and hopefully we'll, we'll talk more about that. Um, but so if we can tend to the microbiome and look at, um, um, you know, let's say, I, I want to say dysbiosis. It's a, it's a fun word that means it's an imbalance of, of gut bacteria, um, but it's more complicated than that. Um, so really what we're looking at when we're, you're talking about functional medicine and functional nutrition is inflammation. And um, whether it's in the gut or maybe in other parts of the body, we really try to to address some inflammation, decrease inflammatory foods, decrease inflammatory, maybe toxins in your environment. And when, you know, when, when we're in, when the body is inflamed, uh, the brain is going to be inflamed. These are the messages that are, are circulating through the nervous system and the immune system. They're very much connected, the immune system and, and um, nervous system. And so if what, what we try to do is that if we can kind of do our best for what we do in um, decreasing inflammation, we can't, you know, we're, we're not um, um, a medicine, we're not a medical um, practice yet. And I'm hoping to add, add that as, as, <laughs> as we go. Um, but we do, let's say what, what, what Angela Nash, she's our functional nutritionist, and we call it, we try to do um, the low hanging fruit trying to, um, you know, manage inflammation from what you're eating and maybe your environment and some lifestyle things that maybe you're doing or not doing. And then um, if we find that somebody's not responding as well as they could, then we'll refer out to a functional medicine doctor. But combining those together about just only talk therapy, um, as well as looking at inflammation and how to address it that's how we'll work with anxiety and depression in that whole body approach. Can you give me some examples of foods that both increase and decrease inflammation? Just out of curiosity. Sure. There's a whole lot of research that gluten is pretty, pretty inflammatory. And, you know, and the, the newer research is really showing that it's maybe more about glyphosate, which is Roundup. Um, that could be really what's more triggering for people. I don't think that this percentage of folks in the population that we have now that are sensitive to gluten. So it's not just about being a celiac, which means you, you really, I mean, you introduce right. gluten to somebody who's a celiac and their entire immune system, you know, doesn't work well. Um, but, but besides that, um, you know, gluten sensitivity is a big thing. 
and really interrupts the microbiome because when we're not breaking it down, um, it's fermenting and it's causing, you know, leaky gut, which then, you know, creates all kinds of havoc for our immune system, which again, co-ops the nervous system into stuff. So gluten can be really, really problematic. And I know that that's really hard for everyone to hear, especially for me. I love I, it. I know I'm, I'm half Italian. So it's like, you oh, know, yeah. I, I would much rather have pasta than anything <laughs> in the, in the whole world. And of course, you know, cookies and, and pies and things like that. Um, and then other, other inflammatory foods that could be inflammatory for people. I mean, dairy is the other big one because sometimes there's a, the body can, can look at a dairy protein and it thinks it's kind of gluten sometimes. Um, so there's some crossover things there. Um, soy can be inflammatory. Um, I mean, um, sometimes eggs can be too. So again, it really depends on the person. And of course, what we're talking about here is that it may not be inflammatory their whole life. So right. it, depending on the state of inflammation that you're in, depending on your gut and where, where you're at, is that you, somebody might be inflamed by most foods that they're eating. So that's, that's kind of a, a sign that, that we, we got to do some, some really big work here because that, that, that's not something that should be happening. Are there certain foods that, that actually work to decrease inflammation? Well, you know, we'll always say feed the microbiome. And mm-hmm. so fiber, 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 <laughs> which, right. you know, when folks are doing keto that they don't want to hear about fiber, right? right. So, <laughs> Um, and, and Americans are famous. Our diets are terrible. We are so, so low in fiber and it, you know, because of a lot of processed foods that, that we eat and, you know, high fat. Um, so yeah, you know, high, high, you know, good, good fiber. And really what that comes from is a lot of vegetables and a little bit of fruit. So that's what I'm not talking about whole grains and I'm not talking about, you know, getting your, your, cereal in the morning, your high fiber brand cereal, that's maybe not the best fiber for you. Um, so yeah, fiber, 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 lots and lots of water. Um, we like to say clean food. So looking at a food that doesn't have, um, antibiotics in it or, um, hormones, um, or pesticides. So really looking at organic produce if possible and, and um, grass-fed and uh, meats and and wild-caught fish. Okay, good to know. Um, tell me more about the gut-brain connection and about how this can influence mood, autonomic nervous system, and overall well-being. This is a big. This is a big question. <laughs> so uh, I, we, I could talk for a long time on this and actually Angela and I do a, we do a, a, a free webinar several times a year called the oh, food cool. mood connection. Yeah. Where we really talk about that. Um, and so we let, let's start when we think about the connection of the gut brain, let's start with the enteric nervous system. Again, that's called the second brain. Um, Remember, and so, but let's also then let's go back and think about the autonomic nervous system is that you've got these, you know, those protectors, or let's say those sense, those sensors that are looking for danger in your environment to make sure that you're surviving, right? So our five senses 
are what do that for the autonomic nervous system, like what we're hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling. Um, that's all giving us data about, hey, is my environment safe? Is it not? So, but the second brain, the enteric nervous system, is actually scanning for threats in what's coming into you, right? So it's going to look at what you're eating and, and kind of do that judgy thing about, hey, are you a threat to me? Are you a foreign invader coming into the system? And if you are, um, I need to figure out how to get rid of you or how to lessen the damage here so we can survive. So that, that, that gut connection is looking and co-opting you know, all these other resources in your body to protect you. And what's happening also in the gut is that you got a, the vagus nerve that is in there. Now, mind you, the vagus nerve connects so many organs in our body, but it literally is the message system that connects the brain to the gut. And so what's happening in the gut, you know, gives off messages that then go up and down the vagus nerve, the information superhighway to inform the rest of the body about what's going on. Um, and so it, you might, this is kind of like a wild research fact to know, but most people, and it would you, you kind of think that the brain is in charge of the body, right? You know, brain, hey, you know, what, what is it when people say, hey, um, I've got anxiety, so um, I know that my stomach, it, it gets my stomach upset or I get nauseous, mm -hmm. it's because I'm anxious. And I might say, well, actually, you're anxious because your stomach's upset. So right. that it, so when we look at it that way, 80% of the information that's going to our, to, to our body is coming from our gut. Only 20% of information that's traveling along that information superhighway is coming from the brain to the body. So when we look at it that way, that so many messages are coming from the gut and going up into the body and to the brain about what's happening. It's like, let's try to, to make that environment in our gut as healthy as possible. So those messages can travel the way they're supposed to. So, and can, can kind of do their job in terms of uh, balancing hormones and all of the other messaging systems in the body. And so we, we talk about how that connection is such that when you tend to the microbiome and you allow some of that messaging to be as healthy as it can be, then we would see that mood becomes more balanced. You have a sharper cognition, you're going to have more energy and even just a greater capacity to even hold stress. Mm -hmm. And isn't there a significant amount of serotonin in the stomach as well? Something, I mean, I've seen all different numbers, but anywhere between 80 to 95% of serotonin is made in the gut. Right. So I can so it, see how that is you right? know, significantly related to mood. And which is, well, then it's a little wild if you bring in, you know, um, psychiatric medication because it's targeting the brain and it's targeting mm -hmm. um, and recycling or reuptaking, right, you know, serotonin. So it's kind of going in and hacking kind of the brain chemistry and, you know, maybe not in a good way, right? But it's not addressing the gut. And so we'll, we'll do a lot of work with people that we, we have a lot of clients that end up working with their um, prescriber and start to taper off of psychiatric medications while we're working on gut and doing some other good stuff. Um, and then they find that, huh, if I just eat this way, you know, right. I kind of, I kind of don't need the, the medication now, you know, 
it's it's not just eat this way. Um, and I forgot to put sugar in there as it inflamed. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> Damn, right? Right. All yeah. the good stuff. I'm telling you. Um, it doesn't you know, mean have, that you can't have the good stuff. I just want you to know, like in, we can still be healthy. Right? Yes. And in yeah. moderation and, and watching it. And, and yeah. I had a, a question come up while you were talking <clears throat> and I, I, I don't know if you know anything about this, but you were talking about the autonomic nervous system uh, being, you know, related or relying, I suppose, on like our sensory stimuli. Mm-hmm. And I, I just wonder how, people who are autistic are impacted by that specifically since, uh, well, because of sensitivities to sensory right. stimuli. I right. just was wondering if you had any thoughts about that. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't work with that population, but there's an awful lot of practitioners here in town that um, whether it be doctors and even there's a few therapists that, um, you know, do have a, a whole body approach and do understand the impacts of, of what's happening, um, let's say nervous system wise, functionally, even medicine wise and autism. Cool. Okay. Um, so how can an integrative approach assist in getting to the quote root cause of depression and anxiety? And like, what does that process typically look like? Well, when we think about root cause, I mean, what really we're looking at a whole bunch of things. So mm-hmm. we're looking at your body, um, not only your gut, but also maybe there's stored traumas, experiences in, in your body of some kind. Um, we also look at, um, you know, I'm attachment therapist, so I'm always going to go back to family of origin and looking very early on in your um, childhood experiences. And so when we can do that and spend a lot of time together in therapy, whether it be an individual or group, um, you know, we can start looking at root cause and kind of do some rewiring together um, in order to kind of not make the old stuff go away, but maybe just rewire you in a way that allows you to hold what's happening um, a little better so that, you know, you might still have feels of anxiety and, and depression, but maybe they're not so loud and so disruptive. Um but also what we find is that when you kind of combine that with a, a gut approach, um, that you, you might find that the anxiety at times can disappear, just disappear, even though you've had some adverse childhood experiences. So, um, yeah, I, I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so what are some examples of some integrative therapy tools you bring into session and when, like what prompts you to utilize those? Well, it's all about where the client wants to go. Sure. That's really, that's really what it, what it's all about. Um, so, um, you know, I, I have individuals and, and I do groups and, and, um, so, and I have this practice called Flourish Psychotherapy and Nutrition. And a lot of folks reach out to me when I first started and, and um, they reached out because I do the mindfulness stuff and, you know, I don't like the labels and I have this holistic approach and they kind of, kind of don't see the nutrition part in the, 
in 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 the in in the practice name, um, and so we're working together. And the longer that I'm seeing, and that that you know, we're if they're doing really good work and they're really committed um, to the process, which means that they're doing the work outside of the therapy room, like really doing some good reflecting and some challenging, and we build some mindful awareness because that's key in anything that we're doing here to really have this awareness about what's happening within you. Um, and when I see them doing really good work, but they're still, you know, still having some intense episodes and, 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 um, it, and that could be showing up in many places. That's when we might say, Hey, let, let's have a, are, are you open to looking at the gut? You know, I might even start with somebody before even doing any type of nutritional changes, um, or even lifestyle changes saying, um, would you be open to some supplements to some protocols for that? And um, I have I have a client who came to me with and a very um, you know had a, a traumatic experience and um, they were in their very early twenties and we did a lot of therapy you know twice a week individually and then once a week individually and went into a group um, and then about a year and a half later though she started to do really really well. And, and I was like, gosh, you know, this big thing, like what is going, what, what was the thing? Like, I'm just so impressed with, with how, how far you've come. And she said it was the vitamins. She calls them the vitamins. It was the supplements. So a year into our work together before um, she really did any type of dietary changes, she had so much fatigue um, and she kept on having like some, some infections that were popping up every now and then. So I just put together a, um, uh, a, a supplement protocol and it was maybe five or six things. Most of it was very gut centered. Um, and then some other mineral report and, and she had more energy. She was like, for the first time in like, I can remember that I am not full of fatigue and just exhausted by three 30 or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm not just sitting on my phone, just scrolling endlessly for hours and hours. Like I want to do things. And from there she was able to do, you know, make some, some food choices. And so, so see, it depends like for some people, you know, how, how we kind of get in there, but then there are some folks that are with me for a few years and know that this is what I do. And I might bring it up every now and then and they were like, no, it can't be that I've eaten this way my whole life. Why is it a problem now? Um, and so I, we, we just try to gently kind of go in there to say, no, and it's a little connected. Yeah. Okay. Um, earlier you mentioned environmental toxins. So I'm curious what, in what ways do environmental toxins impact our overall mental health? Uh, well, overall health and mood. And, and what are some examples of environmental toxins? Good, good question. Loaded question there. Um, I'm full of the them today. <laughs> <laughs> um, so one of the toxins that I named is glyphosate, just, which is Roundup. Um, and so, so, so much research links it to so much damage in our bodies as a carcinogen for cancer. Um, Monsanto, who I think was recently bought out by Bayer, which is a German, uh, their German uh, competitor, now, now their owner, they, they are they billions of dollars in lawsuits around cancer, but we also know that it totally affects brain functioning and very much linked to Alzheimer's. 
and even even dementia. So that's one really big toxin, and it is everywhere. I mean, there are there are infants being being born with glyphosate, right? And because of of what what mom has ingested, and and most of the time we don't we don't know that we're around it. Um, and even depends if you're in rural areas where it's very much, you know, in the air and in the water, right? Um, that that's pretty much disruptive to, you know, as I said, body and brain function. Um, other toxins, um, they can be those PFAS, which is those forever chemicals, mm-hmm. um, um, PFAS. And that, again, is neurologically disruptive. Um other toxins, um, mold, like here in Austin, we have an awful lot of mold and I'm not talking the mold that makes you sneeze, the mold that's from, you know, from the leaves. This is, um, mold that's from water damage, um, and moisture, right? So when I think about Austin, um, it, a lot of our AC systems, there's a lot of mold happening in there. Right. So in people's homes that can, so the, 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 the mold and depending again, this is all dependent on people's bot. Some people are going to have a really hard time with glyphosate. Some may not, some may have a hard time with PFASs, other may not. Um, and it depends really on genetically on what your genetics are. And so genetics play a role in this epigenetic way, which means that just because you have a gene that says that you're predisposed to Alzheimer's doesn't mean you're going to get Alzheimer's. But if your environment um, expresses these genes in a poor way, and that environment means it may be that if you have a lot of glyphosate in your system, your your genes are going to express themselves. That is going to make that more of a of a of, of a thing that could happen, right? Um, so the same is true with something like mold, like depending on the person. Um, I'm a type of person, I met with a genetics counselor years ago and did this really great work. Um, very thankful for it, but found out I'm not very good with mold. <laughs> yeah, I'm highly al- allergic to mold. Yeah. And so, and, and yeah, I'm, I'm allergic to it, but what happens is when it's, it's, it's not an allergy, it's like when mold, when I'm exposed to mold organisms, um, and they come in my body, it is very disruptive. I have a really hard time getting rid of it. Um, and so those kind of things, they I'll, I'll have quite often people come, come to me and there's a lot of fatigue and the fatigue gets misdiagnosed as depression. So remember when we said that whole body approach to mm-hmm. mental health, that really I do a lot, a lot of assessing. And even if I do the Beck, um, Beck depression inventory, and I won't find a whole lot of hopelessness there, but I'll find an awful lot of fatigue. And I'll say, I don't, I don't see major depressive disorder here. I see chronic fatigue that has been undiagnosed. And so through some time and maybe through some referrals too, we might kind of peel back, but more often than not, that the person has been exposed to mold either currently where they're living um, or in the past. And it's still, whether in them or even in some other belongings from a past place where there was water damage, right? And so we may even see that more now, actually, because of the storm that we had and busted pipes Mm -hmm. that happened in February. And people don't know how dangerous mold can be for certain people. You might have a household of six people, but one person might be the one that gets ill. And so because um, there may be in, um, 
you know, in an environment where everybody's fine and whether this is mold or maybe any other toxins, like what we're talking about is that a lot of times folks with mental health symptoms, it gets just dismissed, right? Like, oh, you're just crazy or, oh, you just need to take an antidepressant, you know, but when we find that it's maybe there's a toxin here that you've been exposed to that, um, that is creating this, then the problem never goes away just with a psychiatric medication. Right. And actually the problem can get worse over time because you're still exposed, but also some of the dismissiveness about folks around you can then make it worse. Cause now you're feeling alone. I'm hopeless. I can't do anything. Yes, I am broken. So you're going into that dorsal vagal response that I was talking about earlier in the right. autonomic nervous system. Right. So it's kind of like sometimes these toxins can create a cycle of mental health stuff that feels like it will just never go away. And so by looking at toxins, looking at environment and trying to disrupt that cycle, we get some really good stuff at the end of that. Makes a lot of sense. Um, so regarding psychiatric medications, what are your thoughts and feelings on psychiatric medications? And at what point do you generally refer for psychiatric medications? So I, I might give more of a controversial answer here. Oh, please do. Than, <laughs> than what other people do. Um, I'm not a fan of psychiatric medication. However, I do understand that it can play a role for some people and a very, very important role. So I just want to make that clear. Um, Let's say um, the role that it can play when somebody really is in a depression and there's maybe suicidal attempts, you know, it, it, that can be really, and or with anxiety, or even if it's delusions or hallucinations, like, you know, those type of things, I can understand how some psychiatric medication is very, very necessary. Um, but I do believe that psychiatric medication is meant for short-term use, not long-term use. And I've, um, I don't know if you've ever read the book or heard of the book, Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker. I haven't. Oh, it did changed my whole, my, my whole, my, uh, my whole view of psychiatric medication. And Robert Whitaker is a journalist. So he went after it as like an investigative reporter. He now has another book coming out around the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but I heard about this book when I went to a conference in 20. I think it was 2015. And it was about a thousand psychotherapists there. And, um, and it was a lot of interpersonal neurobiology stuff. And, and one of the presenters very early on went up like who, who has, you know, who has read anatomy of an epidemic. And I felt like I was the only person in a thousand people that didn't raise their hand. Um, <laughs> but the book now really, I'm that person. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you know, I mean, I, I go to Barton Springs a lot and do a lot of reading there. It's just my, my favorite place to be. And it's chill. And I read that book while I was there and I found myself just tearing up a lot. There are a lot, a lot of research that shows that over time that a lot of psychiatric medications do more harm than good. Um, so, and, and this is research that, you know, is in a lot of other countries, may, maybe not here, but let's say when I look at it from just a different angle, a lot of times I have people that come in that are really struggling with depression or anxiety that is just so chronic and so interfering in their life and they're on medications. And I'm saying, but if you're on medication and you're still struggling, why are you on the medication if it's not helping? Um, you know, is, is there maybe other things that we can do? 
But they also come in with the belief that I am broken in some way and I need this medication. And without it, I would be a mess like I was before I took it. I was worse before I took it. Um, And so what I have found is that when we just, okay, let's, you keep doing your psychiatric medication. Let's keep on doing our therapy stuff. And when we start to maybe build some mindful awareness, when they start to really get into a therapeutic relationship with me, one with compassion and empathy, and they really feel me joining in them, they're able to then maybe start to process stuff and resolve stuff from a long time ago, they haven't. And when they start to maybe feel a little stronger and have a little bit more capacity to take on what's happening around them, then we might start working on reducing the psychiatric medication. This is all under supervision from their prescriber. Um, We find that they find that they're able to get off of the medication and find a new benchmark for them, what it was like. And also this feeling like, huh, I wasn't as broken as I thought. I didn't have this thing called depression that's going to be with me for the rest of my life. Got it. Got it. Okay. What about some examples of other mental health concerns that an integrative approach can assist with? Um. Well, in, in insomnia can be a I big I can see one. that for sure. Yeah. 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 No, I, you know, I, um, and so in, in insomnia, though, is really, really hard and um, to kind of wrap around. It's just, and I, I, I guess to me that um, depression, and I, and I don't mean to say this with glib, but depression from a gut brain or a whole body approach can sometimes be easier to work with. Um, it doesn't maybe have as many root causes as as something like anxiety does or insomnia. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the harder things to work with in an if with an integrative approach. Um, but um, yeah, uh, in, in, insomnia we can do some good work on that. Cool. Okay. Um, well, is there anything that I didn't ask about a whole body approach to mental health? that you think would be good for people to know? Well, um, over time, Noah, I have not been comfortable sharing my own story, Um, but I'm developing a new website and I've been encouraged by the folks that help me with social media marketing saying, Cindy, you need to share more of your, your story. So I can tell us, yeah, Yeah. I'm going to bring that in because I think it, it is, it is really what started me to bring a lot of this in. Um, and maybe helps to shed some light about what this whole whole body approach can do. So I, I know that I mentioned that I have chronic illness, um, and it started in 2005 and hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, not really sure of the root cause, but there was um, a traumatic experience before then, and I'll name it here. I was at I used to work in New York City, so it was in the World Trade Center on September 11th. Um, that was not a fun day for me, um, but luckily was able to get out of there okay, but not okay, if that makes sense to you. Um, totally. Yeah. So, but a- after that, um, I had I had a lot of um, inflammation happening in my body. I had joints that were not doing well. I had started with knee problems, like I would fall down um, when I was walking, and I was actually. I was 40 something years old and I was in 
um, martial arts and I was really trying to get my black belt. Um, so I've always been active. So to have my body start to fall apart like this was a bit odd. Um, and then after, you know, I, I ended up having knee surgery in 2005 and one surgery went really well. Another did not in terms of recuperating. And that's when the fatigue started, the inflammation was all over. So it was probably a mixture of whether it be trauma and something happened in that procedure, as well as I was in a house that had mold in it and didn't know oh, it for many no. years. So I kind of had a whole bunch of crappy yeah, stuff happen to me. Yeah. And so during that time, I mean, I, I had, um, you know, health insurance. And so was, this was in um, um, like 2005, 2006. So, um, you know, went through conventional medicine route. I got diagnosed of having depression, heavy depression. And that's why that, you know, my back hurt or, you know, I was fatigued all the time. I mean, I was all, I was a single mom. I was an energizer buddy. You know, I was a single mom. I, I taught aerobics part-time just for fun. And I worked wow. in, this, in New York city. I mean, I would go, I have a lot, a lot of energy. Um, and so when it just left me, it's like, this doesn't feel like depression, right? So um, I was on, um, I had some disability insurance, private disability, thank goodness. So I didn't lose my home, was able to stay there and, but was on medications and went to so many doctors and nobody could really help me. And this feeling of just exhaustion and hopelessness was just with me all the time. And I had always had anxiety, but now the anxiety I was having was just at a level that was awful. I was really just scared to leave my home, like not thinking I could, and I, I couldn't walk very well because my back was really a mess and um, I couldn't walk very far. I couldn't stand. Like I just, these things that I used to do couldn't take care of myself. Um, but when I moved back to Austin and started with functional medicine doctors, it was just easier to find people here and trying something new um, over time, working with so, so many people. And I was very, very lucky I had the resources to do this because none of this was covered under insurance. Um, I started to feel better. And, and, and when I was in graduate school, it became very important to me to even feel better because I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm loving what I'm doing. I really want to be able to work more than 10 hours a week or really be able to do something consistently. And um, I did some big changes in my diet. I'd done changes before, but nothing this big. I completely eliminated grains for many months. And I noticed just as a side effect, as I was doing some therapy with people, I had noticed that um, I had a trip that was coming up and I didn't have panic attacks about it. I'm like, this is bizarre. Like it just came out. Like I noticed, like I am packing for a trip and I'm still sleeping at night. I am not having panic and getting overwhelmed about what am I bringing, you know, getting some frozen mm -hmm. responses from that, like, you know, kind of putting things off. I was going through, I was going through the normal thing that I do preparing for a trip and it felt easy. I was like, God, I've never had that before. And that's when I started, you know, asking questions to my doctors at the time, like what's happening here. And that's when we started to understand there's a real connection between what you're eating and having like this very low level of anxiety there. And so that's what really started with me. And then when I worked with a genetics person um, and really understood how some of my crappy genetics 
uh, were at play mental health wise. And literally what I found was, you know, I take a lot of methylated B vitamins and in different forms. Um, and, and all of a sudden I didn't have brain fog anymore and I could think clearly and I had more energy. So it really has been my personal experience. Um, it informed, it didn't, it doesn't mean that everything that happened to me that I'm going to do that with clients. Um, but I did just notice that if this worked for me, this, uh, this whole body approach, then it could work for a whole lot of people that maybe weren't being helped in conventional medicine. Maybe they were having symptoms that weren't responding to treatment like mine were. Um, and, 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 and I do know, again, I said, I'm not really great at some of the sciencey things. I have to work hard, really hard to know a lot. Um, but bringing in other people into my practice that are much better at than I am has really helped, you know, others, um, our, our clients, um, you know, take that whole body approach to, to wellness. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank you for sharing that story. Oh, you're welcome. That's a uh, 9-11. That sounds awful. I'm sorry you had to go through that. Oh, thanks. It, but it woke me up. It woke me up. I was single mom working real hard and, you know, just doing my thing as a commuter, doing the best I could take care of my son was not really paying attention to current events, had no idea who these people, the Taliban were. I I know now. (laughs) I know know a lot more now. I'm, I'm more plugged in. Um, it was a wake up call for, for me. Um, so in kind of a way it's kind of shaped who I am today. So I am yeah. kind of grateful, but it's kind of wild to think like, oh my God, I have all the millions of people in the country, Yeah, a few thousand of us there that day. And I was one of them. And that's, that's bizarre. It also affected my son. Of, of, of course. course. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I like to think that, you know, I had PTSD for a very, very long time. And this mindfulness stuff that I do, um, I couldn't be, that's what I'm saying. I'm kind of grateful. I wouldn't have found mindfulness. I mean, the first I started to feel um, really uh, better about um, even, I mean, my whole body goes, would go into stuff for 10 years, right? The week before September 11th, right? I would go into, you know, an anxiety Mm -hmm. stuff, but really into kind of a depression of sorts, very, I'm very not present, very preoccupied. Um, But when I started doing more Kundalini yoga and meditation and a lot, a lot of breath work, um, that that doesn't even happen to me anymore. It's like, oh God, I look at the calendar. I'll have some family reach out, like thinking about you today. I'm like, oh, I didn't even know what what day it was today. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you again for sharing that. I really appreciate it. Um, Turning the questions more so to to you as a therapist, um, what kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender undocumented or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Um, Well, when I was in uh, graduate school, I had an internship at a high school that had a lot of undocumented um, teenagers there. So I had a group um, with them. um, And um, so, gosh, that's when I first got familiar with DACA and helping them Mm -hmm. do some, some paperwork. So I have some experience as an intern and this is my, this is my older intern. This is not one, you know, a long time ago. Um, And then I was at Capital Area Counseling here in town Mm -hmm. 
for about four years and that they serve a pretty vulnerable population. Um, so I have experience with that. Um, but um, I want to say that we, um, we, we probably have more therapists at Flourish. We have a couple there that have more experience with this population than I do. And so that the group practice, we, we really tried to, to, to kind of hold everybody there. Um, but because a lot of what we do is private pay um, and even sliding scale, you know, I don't know, like a $70, you know, sliding scale is maybe not too great. Um, I, I am on the board and founded a nonprofit here in town called the Mindful Wellness Center of Austin. And we do sessions at 30 to $50 a piece through telehealth at the moment. We are really trying to figure out how to do some run fundraising and maybe look for some grants so we can have like $5 copays, right? Mm -hmm. So we can have like some scholarships for folks um, to pay for this. So what we really want to be able to do is bring this mindfulness stuff, um, this mindful approach to wellness um, to as many folks as we can. Very cool. I love that. Please send me, uh, do you have a website for that? We do. Can you email that to me and I'll include it in the show notes so people sure. can find it? Sure. Um, Thanks. Awesome. So, you know, a lot of people, they make an appointment with a therapist, you know, sometimes it's weeks out. They spend the next few weeks really anxious about how this first session is going to go. So this question is designed to help reduce the anxiety somebody might have coming in to a first session. Um, so what could a new client expect from an initial session with you? And what about more on an ongoing basis? Well, you know, for an initial session, for most clients, I'm not like this with everybody, um, but for most clients, I do a lot of, I ask a lot of questions. Um, and so I end up talking more the first, especially the first session than they're used to. So sometimes it makes it easier for them because they don't have to, you know, um, really come and, you know, hand me on a silver platter, all of their stuff so I can you know, we can, we can start our work because I'm, I'm all about context. And so I, I need to know a lot before we get going, but there are some people that, you know, we might need to jump in right away, depending on where they're at. Um, but that still means that at some point I will be getting that context. So that first session, really the first couple sessions are easy, um, easy for them. Um, they can, I'm, I'm a little bit more directive at the beginning and really working on just building this relationship between the two of us, um, checking in a, a bunch. I'm very relational and I'm also noticing what's happening. And so really wanting to do the best that I can to have them feel that I'm really hearing them and seeing them and getting to know them. Um, and then over time, um, really just if they can allow me to join them in with what they're experiencing and going through, um, that's where our real work comes from. And that's the Absolutely. stuff that, that, that we collaborate on, you know, over, over our time together. Okay, cool. Next question. I love this question. How would you say your clients describe or experience? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's interesting, right? Um, 
I, you know, what, what my clients may say is that I'm with them. Like they hear me <laughs> all the time. What would Cindy say? Right. Um, in that, in, in, in what they're doing. So I, you know, I, I can maybe take that to say that our connection together is real. Um, I believe that they really, they know that I care about them and they know that I get them. I, I mean, we, we actually, we, I say that a lot saying, I know you, I know this about you. Um, and so really, really, I think what they would say is that I am connecting with them and just accept them for who they are and who they are not. And I am delighted in whatever they bring to me. And the big thing here is that I'm, I'm not going to judge. Um, it's hard, no one not to judge, um, right? We're wired, right? Our biology is there to wire, to, to judge. But I would think that, um, that they would say that that's probably the biggest thing that they get from me. It's just openness and, and no judgment and warmth and compassion. Okay. Next uh, question has been a little controversial um, on the show previously. And I mean, of course, there is no right answer to this, right? Um, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? <laughs> controversial, really? Because I do both. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. I mean, I, I, think, I think it's a very fine line to walk in terms of like ensuring that it's not about us, right? Um, and that we're not bringing our stuff into session. But I, I do find that there are moments that are just where I just feel really touched and I might yes. tear up and, you know, and yeah. I think that that's a result of being connective, like, and, and yes. it feels like yes. that's a lot different than like crying and making it about yourself in that moment. You oh, know? totally, totally. When you do your own work as a therapist, right, you know, that you can notice your stuff and kind of, you know, to me, put it on a shelf. Oh, there's my, oh, okay. I don't need that right now. But when you're really connecting with someone and especially if you've known them for a while, but they share something very, very tender and you are really with them. You're really empathetic. Um, and, you know, our mirror neurons are going to, you know, if they're experiencing that in a hard way, I'm going to feel that. Um, and I'll even also feel that if they're sharing something beautiful with me, right. um, you know, whether it's like an epiphany they had or just a really, you know, they've been struggling with something and they were able to do something they didn't think they could do. I'm going to have tears of joy, but it's right. a real honest um, response to what they're sharing with me. And I think that in that way, when, when we, when I know that I'm keeping my stuff in check and, and listen, it's hard. It is very very hard um, that when when we can connect with them emotionally and respond to them honestly with them in in those tender moments that that I think is part of of the healing yes and part of the way that they find their wellness right through us really showing our own connection to them in that way mm -hmm. and of course Absolutely. the laugh the laughing thing I love laughter. And I oh, have, yeah. I have prescribed laughter to people. Like I want you to do, to, to watch something, listen to something, do something that makes you laugh every day. 
right? And and, a, and in Kundalini Yoga, there are some kriyas or let's say recipes, which are like uh, routines of things that we do. Sometimes laughing is a piece of it because when we're doing really good belly laughing, <laughs> you know, like kind of, you know, really engaging, yeah. we are doing great work with our vagus nerve. So, mm-hmm. so laughing is even prescriptive as a way to increase vagal tone so that you can kind of pop in and out of fight or flight and back into parasympathetic nervous system with a sense of ease. So if you think about it, the more we laugh, the easier it can be to recuperate from something that can kind of, you know, light us up in a fight or flight way. Yeah, absolutely. I hadn't thought about laughter in that context, but for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Next one is another one of my favorite questions. How do you define holding space for someone? Well, you know, I know we're, you know, we're on audio, but I know you can see me, but you can't really see me, all of me, but I'm putting my arms out. So when I think of, of holding space for someone, I, I really think of holding them, like holding their experiences, their their tenderness, their individual aspects of, of them that they've shared with me that I've really gotten to know. Just, I think about holding all of them in a container that's safe and warm and trusting. Right. And, and so that's what, that's how I um, view it in, in that way. And I even think of holding space as also joining in their, in whatever they're bringing together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love that question because we all use different words, but we're all describing the same thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's just, it's an interesting question. I love it. Um, What is the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor? Oh, lots of good stuff. Lots of good stuff. Hmm. I wouldn't even know where to start, Um, (laughs) right? Well, I I had a supervisor that was with me when I was a student um, and then stayed with her. Her name is Susan Fitchick Johnson. Um, She is um, a a sound, she's in uh, sacred sound, ATX, I think is her her handle. Um, And, um, but all along she has just helped me to really do a lot of work with attachment and, and mindfulness, but she's given me phrases that I often use, like with clients, um, the phrases like, huh, so when, when you notice that you're doing this thing, you know, we can have this language, she would say of um, that thing you do, it's just that thing you do, it's that place you go. So I think she really helped me with a lot of language and helping clients see certain things, and really bringing attention to that in this attachment work that we do, that when we kind of go, huh, I really didn't get some of the, um, let's say, um, acknowledgement or validation of what I was experiencing from my parents or from my mom or my dad. Um, she really helped me to see that, oh, we, we've got some mourning to do, right? That mm-hmm. you didn't get some of the parenting that you needed. And this is not to blame the parents at all. This is just for you to be present with, huh, you really needed um, a little bit more than what you got. And I'm just feeling for that, that, uh, you know, eight-year-old that uh, fell off their bike and my mom didn't notice that you had a big bad cut on your leg. Right? Yeah. So it just is really, I think those are just only two of the little pearls I got from Susan, a whole lot more. Cool. 
Um, next one is a, a big question. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Hmm. Well, um, uh, I, I learned that people are suffering. Pretty much everybody is suffering on some level or another. Um, but also if on, I don't, um, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a Buddhist, but there is some aspects of Buddhism that make sense to me, but right. Didn't the, the Buddha say like, um, being human is suffering. That's just, mm-hmm. that's what we're here. But I think really seeing all the different shades of it. Um, I'm, I, I wasn't maybe prepared for seeing as much suffering as I have because it looks, it looks so different on everyone. Um, and, and really just looking at the world through that lens, right? We're so divided. There's so much anger. And I'm like, oh gosh, there's so much suffering, just so, so much, so much powerlessness, perhaps, mm-hmm. right? You know, a few in power and an awful lot without power. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I've learned and seen. Some pretty heavy stuff. Heavy duty. <laughs> Thank goodness. Um, well, we Thank know. goodness for mindfulness, right? Right here, right now. I'm like, right here, right now. I'm right. okay. I'm talking with Noah. I'm all right. The sky is blue. I'm hoping to get to Barton Springs pretty soon. Right. Um, but outside of that, like you can have those moments to where it's it's pretty dark and and awful out there. But right here, right now, I'm okay. Yeah. Well, we know you like to go to Barton Springs and <laughs> read. What else do you do to take care of yourself? Oh gosh, I, I do an awful lot. It's exhausting when I think about what I do. Um, a lot about what I do has to do with like what I said, caring for my very uh, degenerated spine. So I do an awful lot of physical therapy and I have to do acupuncture pretty frequently. Um, and um, I have an infrared sauna in my house, really good to detox from That's mold. amazing. It is, <laughs> right? Um and I have an elliptical in my home. I used to go to the gym, but now with COVID, I have it here. So there's lots of things that I do. I have, um, of, of course, walking is really important to me, moving my body too and, and taking out my dogs. But, you know, that cooking thing, um, like when COVID hit and people are like, huh, you know, where do I get my food? I was, I, it, it didn't affect me. Because I prepared 90, probably even more than 90% of um, what I eat is what I do. So it keeps me really busy taking care of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to try to take holidays at least once or twice a year, like places where I can chill. But, you know, COVID and some family stuff has impacted that over the years. So I know I am overdue yeah. or, yeah. You, know, a, a, you know, a couple weeks on a beach somewhere. <laughs> I hear that. I hear that. Um, how would you define happiness? Well, you know, to me, the happiness is elusive. Um, and I guess um, there were times when I was younger that maybe being happy was important to me. And I don't, I don't find that I'm looking for happiness or even labeling what I'm experiencing as happiness. I'm more like, huh, I've got some ease today, like really just settling into the present moment and noticing 
little things around me, whether they're little sounds from the birds outside that I like to hang out with when I meditate in the morning or little things that my dogs do or something really like art, arty, artsy that really just touches me. I, that's, I look for joy perhaps. Mm -hmm. And, and if I can have a few moments of joy spread out throughout the other day, I'm, I'm thrilled. So maybe that's happiness to me is having a day that, that had a bunch of, of joyful things happen or that I experienced or that I let in that maybe to me is, I guess, I guess that means I'm happy. Okay. Next questions of this, as if this entire interview hasn't been vulnerable, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but next questions are a little more vulnerable, perhaps. Um, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician? Huh. Um, that's that, you know, um, that's a fun one. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking back and I'm, I'm trying to remember the time. Um, and I'm pretty sure it was early 2019 um, but I had, um, I had, my, my mom had passed away right before, literally like, like two weeks before I had opened up my private practice. Um, and so when I was first started in my private practice, I was going back and forth to North Carolina, hanging out with my dad. And um, later in the year, he started to get sick a little similarly to my mom. And so I was very preoccupied going back and forth. My sister even lived with him, but I found myself just really trying uh, just to, let's say, wrapped up in what was happening with him. And then he got sick and I was going back and forth an awful lot and seeing clients. And during this time when I was back and forth, I had a client come to see me and wanted to be in one of my groups. And when we do the group thing, I say they have to meet with me at least three times before they start in an established group. And by the second time that I had seen this client, I was calling her by the wrong name. I called her oh, no. by the wrong client because it was a client that I was also seeing that was thinking about coming into right. group. And yeah. And she just looked at me and I just apologized. And um, I, I felt terrible. She ended up not staying with me and I, I don't blame her. Right. But I really, I really wasn't very present. Right. And, and I, I think that when you're self-employed that, um, and, and, you know, it might have been better for me to not see people, um, but, um, you know, you, you need to. And I did the best that I could to be the best therapist I could during. There was like two or three months that were hard. Um, yeah, that's that's understandable. And it's hard because, you know, when we're struggling as a person, right, one of the things that sometimes helps us keep going and gaining momentum is continuing to work, you know, um, so I understand why. Yeah, that's very true. You would do that, you know. Yeah, that um, was very, very true. I actually did some video sessions when I was in North Carolina, and I was so grateful to be like to have like you know you know sick dying man in this room over here who happens to be my dad who I adore, right? And oh, and I have clients in here, so I could just kind of close that away, pretend it wasn't you know I was just someplace else, and really you know, get into it with the client. It was, it was, it was very, it was a very good thing for me to do for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, next question. Are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Yes. And yes. <laughs> good deal. Was it, yeah. Wasn't therapy a hundred years ago. 
um, even before, you know, um, even before September 11th. And um, so, yeah, I did some good therapy, you know, a long time ago, but, um, but now that I'm in therapy and really doing this attachment work, like, I'm like, oh goodness, if I had done that attachment work, like so long ago, things may be different. <laughs> things may be different right now. So I say this to clients, like I was in therapy um, probably for, gosh, if I think about September, probably for 13 years, you know, not the entire time for 13 years, but we didn't do any attachment. And then you go now and we do this work and I'm like, it, 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 it's gone on pretty quickly. So I, yeah. I, I say that things with, with my clients saying, as much as I'd love for you to be with me for years and years and years, I feel like I wouldn't be doing my job right if you were, if you were here for that long. So when we bring this attachment stuff in, hopefully you won't be with me that long. Yeah. Yeah. Well, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you and or your practice? Um, I I think that maybe what I want people to know is that I'm just not only about the gut or the brain, right? And and that I do understand that, uh, that sometimes that food thing can mean an awful lot of of different things for people. And then I just want people to know that even though it says like psychotherapy and nutrition in Flourish's name, that doesn't mean that everybody that comes to us has to be about nutrition. It also doesn't mean that everybody that comes to us has to be about therapy, right? right? That we, we, we have both of, of these um, modalities or let's say perspectives to work with a client. And it is all about where the client wants to be, what they're open to, what they're not, and we will, we will do what's best for them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Cindy. It was a real pleasure. Thanks for having me, Noah. Appreciate it. Take care. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Nicole Hart, licensed professional counselor and certified Imago relationship therapist. We'll be talking about her practice in an area of specialty, Imago therapy. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page.
Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.